0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Hello, and welcome to this education-focused episode of Behind the Knife. We are the general surgery education team from Cleveland Clinic. I'm Nicole Brooks, a general surgery resident and current surgical education fellow. And I'm Judith French. I'm the Ph.D. Education Scientist for the Department of General Surgery.
0: And I'm Jeremy Lipman. I'm the DIO and Director of Graduate Education here at Cleveland Clinic.
1: On today's episode, we have the pleasure of having two of the four hosts of the Key Lime podcast with us to gain their valuable perspectives on education research. Key Lime, short for Key Literature in Medical Education, is produced by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Each week, the hosts provide a concise and informative review and discussion of an article that is important, innovative, and impactful in the world of medical education. Their podcasts have certainly become an excellent resource for me as I've started my journey in education research.
0: So we're joined today by John Sherbino and Laura Varpio. Dr. Sherbino is an emergency and trauma physician and professor at McMaster University, he received his medical degree from University of Ottawa and a Master's of Education and Fellowship in Medical Education at the University of Toronto. He currently serves as the Assistant Dean for McMaster Education Research, Innovation, and Theory program. He is an accomplished education researcher with over 200 publications and $900,000 of funding. Dr. Lara Varpio is Professor of Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, where she's involved in the Medical Education Master's program. She completed her PhD at the University of Waterloo in 2007, Dr. Varpio is internationally recognized as an expert in qualitative research methodologies and social sciences and humanities theories. She has over 150 publications and $5.7 of grant funding secured during her career, and we are just thrilled to have both of them here with us. Uh, We are all huge fans of the Key Lime podcast and really excited for this crossover episode between Key Lime and Behind the Knife.
2: Thanks so much, uh, Jeremy, Nicole, and Judith. We're super excited to be here. Um, It's like we're getting to hang out with uh, like minded educators. It's excited to uh,
3: be a part of your podcast.
1: Okay, Laura, we're going to start out with you. What makes or breaks a study for you?
3: Oh, Wow, we're going to start right off on the deep end, eh? Buckle
2: up, everybody. This is (laughs) going to be exciting.
3: So I really appreciate the question because there are a couple of make and break moments in any uh, medical education study, and it doesn't really matter what domain of of medical education research you're doing, even if you're doing it outside med ed. I think really good research has a couple of key things. One is that there's alignment between... Your paradigmatic orientation, one is the the way in which you think about science, like what is rigor and all those sorts of things. So that orientation has to align to your research question, which then must align with your methodology, which then must align to your methods to then your conclusion. Because if you don't understand how those connect together, what often ends up happening is at the end of a study, you end up making these statements of what, therefore, I have proven X and there's no way your study to z- design could enable you to prove X. So I think those kinds of alignment moments are really important. Another thing for me, as uh, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the literature, I would really love to hear or, or recommend to the listeners that you think really hard about the way you describe your method section. Because for research, right, what are we doing? We're building knowledge. And if the method section doesn't hold water then the rest of the paper doesn't matter. I'm a hardliner on that one. That if there is a fatal flaw in the methods or if the methods have weaknesses, have challenges, or if they demonstrate that the, the authors didn't really necessarily understand or know what they're doing... Then to me that's a serious red flag, so I think when it comes to make or break moments in a, a, a research study, be it medical education or otherwise, I'm looking for that alignment. And to find that alignment, I'm going to go right to your research question and then spend some quality time in your methods section.
2: First off, Laura, as always, you're right on the money. Actually, do I ever say that? First off, you're always right on the money. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I agree with everything you said. I want to soften the. The, the tenor of maybe what the underlying piece is, which is education research sometimes can feel inaccessible to people earlier in their career. Now, education research has the same rigor as lab or clinical trials. I would argue that the range of different methodologies available to education researchers is even broader than what we might see in bench or clinical research. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that those who are engaging or in curious about in um, embarking on an education scholarship project should say it's, it's a hopeless or futile task. One of the, the key things I would recommend is to partner very early on with someone who has education research expertise. And that collaboration can be really foundational. The trials that really fall apart for me are ones when people come to me with data, looking for help with analysis. And usually the bulk of the time is spent going back to first principles of what's the real question we're trying to answer here? Not how do we analyze data in trials that, that arrive on my doorstep with data usually are ones that are going to be really frustrating and going, and you're going to have a lot of problems with spending a lot of time upfront, refining what that question is from which will flow the informed theory in which will flow the appropriate methodology. That's a lot of hard work that people probably don't appreciate.
3: I'm going to jump back in there, John, because I'm going to tell you that I agree with you that the the hard work of research is usually before you collect any data, because that's when you got to think through it. The only thing I'm going to challenge you on, I don't think medical education research is harder um, to, to get into. I just think it's probably a domain that a lot of, for instance, surgeons uh, and surgical educators haven't necessarily had a reason to jump into yet. I think actually, you know, when when I read our papers, I think, a lot of them are really compelling and interesting to read. Now, that just might be because I'm a med ed geek, but I I don't see them as difficult.
0: I think it brings up an interesting point. You know, the med ed research in surgery has been growing and growing. And what we're finding, though, is that a lot of faculty will come to a trainee or to one of us with some kind of idea. Mm -hmm. It's not well flushed out. And maybe it's sort of just uh, pie in the sky kind of thing. And so for the trainees that want to get more involved in this and want to learn how to do good research, how can they identify a good education research mentor and a project that really has legs to go all the way rather than just uh, sort of a, a neat idea that that's not going to turn into anything meaningful? I'll put that to John.
2: Um, I think that the first step is maybe even a pre-step. If education and education scholarship is something that you might imagine as a surgeon, as part of your career. The right jumping off point is to find a community of people who are having conversations around education. It might be a virtual community, hearing where the education literature is moving. But presumably, there's also opportunities at your local institution, and particularly for trainees, I'd imagine that there are growing opportunities through national organizations or regional or even local organizations. It's in that building of a professional network of other people engaged in education research that you will begin to understand what are the questions that are being well answered, where are the giant lacunes and gaps in the literature relevant to interests that you have, and in that alignment will probably become even greater creativity than something that is opportunistic—an option, an opportunity to do a study rather than a question that's important to you. And once you have that connection with individuals, that I think becomes the natural place where collaborators. Can develop Now, I run an education research um, institute at McMaster, and we have lots of PhD educators who are fantastic and fabulous in terms of methodology and, and running their labs. But what they're hungry for is collaborations with clinicians, because it's the source material, it's the opportunity to engage learners and to with teachers, and with the learning environment, which is our clinics and our ORs and our emergency departments and our wards. And so they want to make that connection. And so for surgeons and clinicians locally for us, building that community where we tie people in is where the natural opportunity for collaboration and for mentorship starts to build. So I think if you're somebody who wants to dip your toes into the education scholarship world, find where those conversations are happening and from there I think the projects and the
3: collaborations will flow.
1: In finding those areas, Laura, where do you think researchers in surgical education should be focusing their efforts?
3: Hmm, that's a great question. So I think there's a number of places in surgical education that are ripe for all kinds of different investigations. There's a great body of really excellent research that's been done in the surgical spaces and everything from slowing down when you should, which is such a great phenomenon to think about, to other research that's looked at the way uh, power dynamics play out in interprofessional healthcare teams in the surgical space. I would really love to see research in the surgical space around the idea of the challenges to professional identity formation. I think that there's a very unique orientation that surgeons have in the medical community. And I think that there's a, a, a sense of professionalism, of identity, of profession that is not different in a bad way, but just different than I've seen in other uh, medical specialties. So I'd I'd love to get into those waters and see what's happening and what are some of the bumps and bruises that you face in order to become a surgeon and, and to take on the mantle of that responsibility.
2: I, I got to jump in. Um, I, I love all those ideas, Laura. And we've covered on Key Lime a number of studies that have been done at kind of a national level within the surgical education community looking at issues of burnout and and the ramifications for identity and the ramifications for training. I I would also caution what I'm going to say is I'm not a surgeon, so will be it for me to give advice to surgeons and to surgical education researchers as to domains to go, or will be it for me to say that to any researcher. I think um, the idea of discovery and of finding the questions is the hallmark and the, and the prerogative of the individual. But the things I'm curious about, and I would love to see someone do this, is the operating room environment is a unique environment within all of health professions education. And with the near universal use of laparoscopic and robotic assistance um, in surgery, capturing direct observation of technical skills and surgical performance and surgical decision-making is a very unique environment that's not really replicated well anywhere else in the health system. And so I'm curious to know, what can this tell us about our direct observation for teaching or for assessment in using this this ecosystem that is unique? Um, What can we discover from that and what can we learn? And those are questions that can't really be answered by anyone except for this uh, surgical community.
3: You know, I'm going to jump in on that because I think if anybody's interested in doing that, that's a great idea, John. Um, there's a set of theories called sociomateriality. Uh, those theories would lend themselves really well to that kind of investigation because those theories take very seriously the physical space, the physical objects involved in the learning environment. So, I, that would be really fascinating. And the one thing I'll just add is One of the most important things, I think, for anybody who's interested in medical uh, education, health professions ed, is to walk into it because it's something you're you're personally and keenly interested in. So I always ask uh, people who walk into my room and say they want to do something, but they're not really sure what. I always ask them things like, what's really working well and you wish other people knew about it? Or conversely, what are you frustrated by and you really wish the community would, would address that? those sorts of moments often are the the nascent beginnings of a, a program of research And I've done it with so many different colleagues. It's it's one of those things that enables the project to be something that is personally interesting, personally relevant. And for a lot of us who do med ed research or surgical uh, education research, this is not necessarily the thing that you do uh, that sits at the center of your desk every day. It might be off to the side. So having that personal interest is really important to make sure that it stays alive and moves forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in thinking about some of the advice that you've already given for these uh, new surgical education researchers, is there anything else that you think that would be beneficial besides them pulling over their car right now and jotting down all this information that you just gave them?
3: Sure. Um, I, well, first of all, I hope that their car ride's going well. Uh, but I guess some of there's a lot of really great pieces out there about uh, getting into medical education research and, and, and publishing it. And I think there's a, a couple of things to keep in mind. John's already mentioned finding your savvy friend. As uh, someone who's trained with a PhD, that means I'm looking for clinicians. And uh, for clinicians, I think it means that you're looking for someone with uh, perhaps a PhD education who's savvy in the um, methods and theories of the domain. So finding a friend who can help is really a good thing in terms of that expertise. I also want to underscore the importance of Finding your community, John also alluded to that, but I'm going to make it a little more explicit, that finding a group of people who are also interested, either in the topic or in the space, that community can often become the the lifeline that you hold on to when reviewer two just goes at your paper and you can't really feel like this is still a good idea, so some of those people are really important to have as just people of your space who understand what it is you're trying to do and the challenges and successes you have because you also want to have somebody to to throw the celebration with when the paper gets accepted. I think another thing that's really important for all researchers, regardless of your domain. This is hard work that we're doing. We're building the evidence base from which evidence-based medicine and evidence-based medical education is being built upon. And so that means that the work has to be really good. And that means that you're going to get challenged. There will be people who disagree with you. There will be people who agree with you, but want to take in a different direction. And I think it's really important to remember it's about the work. It's not about me. Uh, That armor, I think, especially for junior faculty is something that's really important. The only other thing that I would love to encourage your listeners to do is to look around them and see what kind of supports are available. There isn't a lot of health professions education or medical education grant money available But you can often cobble together a little here and a little there. And the nice thing about med ed research is that it's really inexpensive. You don't need to buy a centrifuge or pipettes or anything like that. So little grants can make a big difference uh, in terms of paying for transcription and all sorts of little things. I always call it budget dust. What's the budget budget dust that's available that I can go in and just say, you know, that $5,000 you have that you're not going to use? I can use that.
2: I got to jump in and tease you, Lara. Like I'm so pleased that you're an education researcher could name drop the word pipette and centrifuge. That's amazing.
3: (laughs) Thank you. I've been Um, hanging out with you long enough.
2: (laughs) I would, I would compliment all of that by saying much in the same way. And I bet you this is a bit of a a groan for surgical trainees, much in the same way that you need to consider subspecialty training. And if you want to go into a subspecial, uh, subspecialized type of surgical practice, Or for faculty in practice that might go for additional training to acquire a new skill set for a new type of procedure they might want to add to their surgical practice. Health professions education research, medical education research is no longer an option in a serious way um, for amateurs. You can't bootstrap your way in. A couple decades ago, that was certainly true as the field was very early and nascent uh, researchers um, were developing the, the literature. But now you've heard the rigor with which Lara has outlined the the criteria for effective trials and for studies. And, And so if this is something that after you've met a community that you become engaged, you become excited, and you can imagine this is part of your ongoing academic and professional identity formation, then formal training in education research is going to be necessary so that you can build that whole knowledge of theory and complement it with necessary methodology, and uh, that's skill in analysis. It's not something that you can learn just off the corner of your table, it requires dedicated time.
0: So, John, along those lines, you, know, you and Laura have both been involved with uh, these types of professional development programs for education researchers, and we heard Laura mention that one of the first steps would be finding someone with that kind of background and experience. Is this really a requirement? So someone who wants to pursue a career that's going to focus on education research, do they need the advanced degree? Do they need some type of education fellowship? Uh, I suspect you're going to say yes. And if so, then what? when should they be doing that? What's the right time to do that so that they've developed the right clinical experience that they can then complement and add on the subspecialty
2: training, as you called it? So, Jeremy, you know, in medicine, there's no absolutes. I would say that if you want to be successful and you want to develop a career, you will need some kind of graduate training. Um, And I'm not going to prescribe and say this program versus that. At our center, we have two different streams. We have a fellowship stream. We also have a graduate master's level stream. I would say that if the goal is to conduct and to lead education research studies, then graduate training that allows you to go through the steps under supervision of completing a project via a thesis is probably the most effective way to do so. If your goal as an education scholar is to assist with the refinement of innovation and evaluating different nuances of curricula, selection, assessment, etc., then fellowship training may equally be appropriate. But you want to have the low-stakes safe experience of doing the work that you're going to subsequently do in your practice. And so the best place for that, I think, is in a formalized training program. There's always going to be exceptions, and you can imagine different ways to to get that. But if you want kind of a a universal, what's the most effective and what's most likely to be the most efficient way to developing and becoming a successful education researcher, then graduate training um, is helpful. The groan, of course, is that it seems like additional time in, in training. The brilliance of it is that that upfront commitment will save hours and years of frustration as you learn through trial and error and bump into walls and bump into closed doors, you might be able to bypass that. Now, the right timing, I would say that's a a whole other question in and of itself. If it's clear to you that surgical education research is a domain that you want to start to pursue during surgical training, you have made that community of practice A part of your identity and you want to pursue it in a more fulsome way, then continue the momentum and come out of surgical training into education, research training. So that momentum, because otherwise you'll establish yourself in practice and returning to go into a training environment after you're in practice, there's a lot of inertia that needs to be overwhelmed in terms of professional and personal challenges. That being said, of course, if you are a surgeon in practice and are realizing at this point in your career that you want to take a a, a slight turn in how your practice is developing and what your professional life looks like, I I have met numerous individuals that have come into um, education research training, either via fellowship or via graduate school, and have been very successful in transitioning and having a new avenue for what their, their academic life looks
3: like. John, I'm not sure I agree with you. That's not the first time. Uh, Don't you feel that there's something about degree creep happening here?
2: I think there is degree creep, but I also think that the rigor of starting to design um, your own studies and the challenge of... of, uh,
3: I agree with that, but that's why you have friends.
2: Sure, you can do it very successfully as friends, but if you want to do this as a meaningful part of your career rather than doing the occasional study, Mm. and if you want to be the the principal investigator Mm. that starts to unpack a whole series of questions. There's never one question, as you know, Lara. It's usually one question. And as you get the answer to that first question, the whole game opens up and see, oh, now there's three or four more questions down the, the road. Mm-hmm. And if you want to steer that, yeah, path, yeah. then I think uh, formalized mm-hmm.
3: training is the way to go. I don't disagree that um, if you want to be PI and be the sole PI on a program of research, I agree with you, then, then you're going to need some formalized training. And don't get me wrong, I teach in master's and PhD programs, so I do support them. I think they're they're right, but I'm not sure if they're right for everyone. And one of the things I want to just put out there is that if you have a really good colleague with whom you have complementary skill sets, then, you know, I don't necessarily think that surgical educators necessarily need to get a master's in medical or health professions ed or surgical ed. I think if you have a really good collaborator, and then the two of you start doing work together, then that's Well, and, and, you know, I'm also an extrovert. So to me, that sounds like more fun anyway.
0: You do think it's feasible for meaningful education research to come out from people who are doing it more as a side hustle rather than their their main professional course. Mm.
3: So that's the challenge, right? Is that is health professions, education, research and scholarship? Is that something we can do as a side hustle and do it successfully? I'm going to say that you can get so far. As with doing it as a side hustle, I think it's really hard to do that and to do it meaningfully. And so, if there are anybody listening who has the skill set and the space and the power to make available to your faculty time and resources to do the sort of work in a meaningful kind of way, I would really love to advocate for that because you know research is. It's a full-time job for a lot of people. And so asking clinicians to do research in addition to clinical responsibility, in addition to service work, in addition to administrative and leadership roles, it's it's really hard to do it well as a side hustle in a meaningful, programmatic kind of way. I'm never going to say it can't be done. But if you don't have the time, all of a sudden, you're, you're stealing time from other places in your life. And I'm a big fan of balance. So I, I think it's possible. But I think it's hard. Okay, John, what do you think? You probably disagree.
2: I, I think if you measure the impact of a single paper, um, that paper may not necessarily have been built on a whole line of reasoning. Um, you talked about knowing when to slow down. Um, a classic paper in the the surgical literature, but that paper grew out of the thesis of grad work, and so it was the first study um, that that came out of that, and then a whole subsequent. Uh, program of research emerged from that, from someone who's been a very successful surgical educator.
3: You're right. Yeah, I give you that.
2: So you can have a, a, a paper that comes, you know, de novo and opens up whole line. It's the sustained work of, of opening up that line of inquiry that requires time and requires resources and requires research funding to, in order to pursue all of that. So a sustained line of inquiry that really then unpacks the whole domain, uh, that that can't be done, I think, effectively off the side of the table. It might be done effectively mm. by a surgeon educator who does not have a significant amount of uh, protected time, but collaborates with um, a PhD researcher that has that ability to take on more of the project management and, and may come with more of the resources necessary for completion. And so that partnership, that dyad can be very effective. Mm. So yeah, the single paper in isolation can, can be transformative, but the, it's the program of research that really illuminates um, the area. And, and that I think takes a significant amount of dedicated time and attention.
0: And that's why you need the Judith Frenches of the world as part of... Everybody needs more Judiths. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you both so much for all your insight. We're going to go ahead and do our education timeout. So if you could give some key takeaways for our listeners.
2: So thanks for that, uh, Nicole. I think number one, education research, education scholarship is an amazing way to sustain your career. As a full-time clinician, being an education researcher has allowed me to discover things that complement my clinical practice. It sustained me over night shifts. it sustained me when I've been in the trauma suite and it has allowed me to connect and build a network with colleagues and friends that have opened doors I can never imagine. So if you're sitting on the fence saying I might be interested, please go and start to make those connections. The second is everybody imagines the perfect study and when we go to journal club, whether it's a clinical trial or an education, Um, study, at the end, it feels like we have a bit of methodologic nihilism, that nothing was done perfect. And as much as I like to imagine that my studies are perfect, as soon as I publish them, I look back and say, wow, there's some significant places that we could have improved that. And so that key idea is that we're always trying to do the best we can, but understanding that there's no perfect study. And that's why we continue to advance the literature and stand on all of the studies and trials that came before us.
3: So then I'll add a couple of things there too. One is that uh, what I would like to encourage the listeners to do is if you're interested in ever joining any any space of research, be it clinical or hopefully health professions, education, surgical education, one of the best ways of getting acclimated to the field is to engage in reviewing research papers, reading and reviewing and uh, offering insights on the literature that's currently being made is an amazing education. Most journals now send back to reviewers copies of all the reviews with the final decision on the manuscript that you reviewed. That work of doing the review and then seeing what others said too is a really insightful exercise in learning what kind of conversations the field thinks are valuable, the arguments that uh, the field is willing to see as justified. It's really a space where It's a very free education. You do a little community service. So I would love to encourage listeners to sign up uh, for a journal or two, the ones you're interested in publishing in, and and do some review work as as an external reviewer. It's a great educational opportunity. The other thing I'll do is just echo what uh, John said, but frame it a little bit differently. For me, medical education research is legit fun. I like, I truly do wake up every morning and have this feeling of, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. The reason it's so much fun for me, yeah, I get to stretch my brain, and that's great. But it's the people, the people who work in health professions, education, in surgical education. I have never met a more generous, uh, outgoing, supportive community uh, in terms of um, research spaces in the world. So I think one of the things that I would encourage you to do is find your friends. If, if you can do this with somebody that... Is equally passionate and you have a good time doing it. The study will always turn out being on key line with three really great friends like John, Jason and Linda. It is such a gift and it's a gift because it's genuine. So I really want to encourage listeners to find your, find your people. And if you're thinking about health professions, ed, surgical education, I can pretty much guarantee that you will find people who are like minded and are happy to engage with you.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. I, I don't think any of us have ever met an education research person who is uh, disgruntled or difficult to work with. It's a, it's a wonderful community. Well, listen, we're, we're so grateful to have you here. Uh, we definitely encourage all of our listeners to take a listen to Key Lime. We'll put some links in the show notes and very grateful to have Laura and John here with us sharing your expertise uh, wish you all the best and, and really grateful
2: for your time.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.